following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, children, I'm going to remind you of something very unpleasant. That's probably the most unpleasant thing. Getting a spanking. Being disciplined. And uh, at times we know that our discipline that our parents gives us is, uh, is just bad. It doesn't make us happy. It, it hurts and it makes us sad. But what helps us when our parents discipline us are let us not have something that we really want to have to know that they love us as parents and only want to do good for us. And as you realize that, then what they've done becomes actually a means of a blessing in your life. You know, it's very important, isn't it, for you boys and girls to know that your parents are good. We have older people who have visited here with us and maybe even some of us didn't have good parents, and we're not disciplined in that way. But you have that privilege, children. It's very important. But of course, what I really want to talk about is the Heavenly Father who disciplines us, and sometimes quite severely. Sometimes um, we don't even see the good in it in the time being, but we have this promise in Scripture about Him in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, it's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate sons and illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much more Rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Our God is a good God. And you know that when He disciplines you, it is for good and never out of condemnation. But Job didn't know that. Job didn't have the full light of Scripture. And so I want you to remember what what Job's doing here. What he's wrestling with is he completes now his speech in response to Zophar. Zophar accused Job of uh, denying the justice of God by his complaining. And Job says, I don't deny the justice of God. In fact, Zophar, I know more about it than you do. I know that I could not by my works get God's favor to be returned to me. I know that I live as one who is saved by God's grace. But nevertheless, says Job, I don't know what's going on. And I I would enter into court with God if I could, uh, but he's all wise and powerful. I can't enter into the courtroom with God. He he longs uh, for a mediator, an umpire, someone that could uh, bring him to God, someone who could explain God to him. But he says, that's not the case. That's just not the case. And so he... uh, ends what we have uh, in the previous chapter in verse 35. I would speak and not fear him, but I'm not like that in myself. 
He said, there's nothing in him. So he picks up on that uh, dark realization. And what he's wrestling with is, yes, God is just. But what he doesn't remember or know well is that God is good. And that's the theme I want you to keep in mind as we consider what Job uh, uh, says here in these verses. And I want to show you that the believer despairing of God's goodness must continue to seek God in prayer. The believer despairing of God's goodness must continue to seek God in prayer. Consider three things. We're going to look at um, the continued complaint, at the uh, persevering prayer, and at the wrong conclusions. Well, in in verse 1, Job now reiterates his complaint. Uh, He says three things. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Now, earlier he said he despised his life as he was thinking about his sin. But now Job is thinking about the reality of that which he is suffering. And understand, and we'll come back to this next week by God's grace, the suffering is increasing. Now, the external things are not different. What is, what is the increase of Job's suffering? It is the absence of God. It is the hiddenness of God. He had known God. He had walked with God. He had enjoyed the smile of God. Now God, who had, he thought was his friend, has become an enemy, has set himself against Job. What other reason could there be for that which is happening in Job's life? And so it's the darkness. It's the prayers bouncing off the ceiling. It's the overwhelming uh, despair uh, that has filled his soul. And so he, he, he loathes his life. His, his soul is completely encompassed in sorrow, hating the very reality of what's going on. And so he says that in the middle of this verse, I'm going to give full vent to my complaint. I'm not going to stop complaining. I am am overcome uh, with this uh, sorrow, and I'm going to give my complaint because he says, I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Remember, we looked at chapter 9. He said in verse 18, he will not allow me to get my breath. It saturates me with bitterness. Bitterness was his name, like uh, Naomi when she returned to Bethlehem, don't call me pleasant, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. That's what Job is saying. My my life is swollen with bitterness. Boys and girls, you've you've had a sponge full of water. That's what Job's bitterness was like. It was like a sponge. You squeeze it and all that comes out is water. Or or maybe one time you've had the experience that you put a, a glass jar with liquid in it inside the freezer and forgot about it. And you came back, it had frozen, but it had busted the glass because there was, there was no place for the, the water to go as it expanded and it simply uh, uh, burst through its bounds. That's, that's what Job is, is describing here, that um, he is hating his life. He must give vent to his complaint. He's going to speak in the bitterness of his soul. So what he's saying now over against his counselors, his so-called friends, is that I'm going to complain. 
because this is simply swollen within me. I must give vent to these things. Now, you recognize that Job is at wit's end. And at wit's end, what Job says is wrong. Not that he would complain, but the manner in which he uh, spoke his complaint was unbridled and, and without restraint, uh, an attitude that uh, things really are so bad and there's nothing else I can do. Now, perhaps some of you have been at wit's end, and you know what it is to be filled with sorrow. But I, I trust you've not been filled with bitterness. You see, that was, that was Job's problem. But sometimes we do get filled with bitterness at, at the hand of God. And uh, that's, as Job will need to confess of this, we do as well, my friends. That yes, as you are at wit's end, you may complain. And a large portion of the Psalter is, is given to teach us how uh, to express our sorrow and how to mourn the difficulties of our lives. And no one um, outside of, of Job and the Savior uh, would have had more sorrow than David, the great psalmist. But you must express it without bitterness. I want you to see that. What do you do when you are at wit's end? What are you to do when you are, are filled with sorrow well, you're to do what Job does now. And the remarkable thing about Job is he, he's, he never lost, loses faith, does he? He never denies God. So what does he do now in verse 2? He prays. And that's what you and I must do in the depth of our sorrows that overwhelm us and we're swollen like a sponge full with water. We're to pray. So we see in verse 2 Job's persistent prayer. I say persistent because he's constantly turning back to God. And it's persistent because God doesn't give him answers anytime soon. You think sometimes when God doesn't give you the immediate answer that that can't be fair or right or he's not listening or you feel like the prayers have got no higher than the ceiling. But uh, that's why the Savior teaches us to persevere in prayer, to keep asking and um, seeking and knocking, to be like the importunate neighbor who does not give up because he needs bread, and his neighbor gives him the bread because of shamelessness. So Job perseveres in prayer in verse 2, and he prays for two things for which we should regularly pray um, in our trials. Uh, I will say to God, there you see now, he's moving from his complaint. He doesn't give it up, but he doesn't stop there, does he? I'm going to pray. I'm going to say to God, and he prays for two things. Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. So first, Job, again, is pleading with God not to condemn him. Now, Job's already confessed. He knows his sins are forgiven. He'll say at the end of this session, he knows he's not guilty in that way. But, but part, partly what's going on here is that in, his, in these sufferings, he's still a bit into that theology, you know, what other reason can there be for this kind of suffering unless sin, but he can't find the sin, but he, he calls out to God, maybe at a bit of uncertainty. The Old Testament saints, particularly as far back as Job, didn't have the light that we have about the, the persevering love of God. It's expressed 
in our confession, the chapter on Christian liberty. And by the way, when you read that chapter, it's got two different sections. Christian liberty, that's the liberty that belongs to us in Christ, and liberty of conscience. And that's how the Lord alone is Lord of the conscience. But on Christian liberty, the liberty which we have um, purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, condemning wrath of God, and the curse of the moral law. And remember that condemning wrath of God. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage of Satan, dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. As also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law, the old covenant administrations of the covenant. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness and access to the throne of grace and fuller communications of the Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. And so we have something that's much greater than Job had. And that's the realization of the completed work of Christ so that we have been freed from every aspect of condemnation. And we don't need to pray, deliver me from condemnation in that way. But Job is also praying and probably particularly about another type of condemnation. And that is what's taking place in the public condemnation. He's being slandered, isn't he? All three of these men begin with the general accusations, and by the time it's over, you will see they actually are making up sins against Job. And what Job doesn't understand is why in the world is God allowing those people to slander him in such a way, to hold him up to public condemnation. And it's from public condemnation now that Job is asking to be delivered. This was often a prayer of the psalmist, just to put it together. Lord, let me not bring reproach to the saints and on the godly. Do not let me be falsely accused and dealt with by my enemies in such a way that your name is besmeared and your people are reproached by the slanders of the wicked. So we are to pray that God will deliver us from the slanders of the wicked. We're not to focus on them because he is the sovereign God. And we'll pray that he will deliver us from them so that his name will be honored. And um, we then will be delivered from those unjust reproaches. But let me remind you of a key to this. It's very important. And that is, if you're going to be able to pray this, you must have a clear conscience. If your conscience is accusing you, then how in the world can you plead with God to remove slander of men from you. Remember how Peter puts it. Don't be accused because of wickedness. Don't be persecuted because of wickedness. No, be accused because of righteousness. Right now, Mrs. Pipe and I are in what is for me the saddest part of all of Scripture, and that is 2 Samuel 11 and forward, where David commits his awful sin, and then the consequences of sin. But, you know, Part of what lies behind his inability to deal with Amon and Absalom and the others is a conscience. Now, he's been forgiven. 
But every time he thinks about correcting his, his adult children, Satan will stir up that conscience in him, uh, and he fails. You understand, A, if you are in Christ, your conscience has been cleansed from all past sins. B, you maintain a clear conscience by seeking to walk by God's law and daily making regular confession of sin to God and to anyone uh, against whom or before whom you sin. And with a clear conscience, then, you can make this prayer that David makes. Lord, uh, I pray that you will not condemn me. Do not let me be held up to the reproach of others. Now, the second thing he prays for is also very important, and that is, let me know why you contend with me. Now, we're here at the bottom issue again, aren't we? He doesn't know. He is complaining. He has vindicated the justice of God, but he's still in the dark. And so he continues. Now, that's what I mean by persevering. He's continuing to pray to God that God not only would remove the slander, but that God would explain to him what's going on. Remember, he doesn't know. He knows nothing about the heavenly uh, challenge. And he doesn't know until really ever, in terms of the book itself, um, So he wants God to explain it to him. And that's not wrong either, you see. In fact, it's a very important prayer. Now, in Job's case, it was a prayer because in the dark, he couldn't begin to fathom what was happening. And you might be in that situation as well. But God has explained to us in his word, in the general principles, why he will afflict us. In the first place, he will afflict us to... Uh, chasten us, to punish us, as we will chasten and punish our children. And as I've said before, you'll always see a relationship between the particular uh, chastening uh, and the sin uh, that God is, with which God is dealing. But, but we also know that God chastens us for sanctifying purposes. For Paul, it was to humble him because of the great vision he had. Uh, and God will sanctify us to try us, to show us our own hearts, what's in us. So, He'll, he'll try us by affliction uh, to, to humble us and to exercise our faith and to cause us to grow in grace. And sometimes he gives us afflictions and trials uh, merely to make us, as he did Job, an example uh, to those around us, an encouragement to our brothers and sisters and a, a light to the world. So there's lots of reasons. And in some of your afflictions, God might not in this life answer that prayer in terms of your particular difficulty, but what you do know is that it will be a means of sanctification. He sent it out of love. So as you fall into trials and afflictions, before you immediately start crying out for deliverance, and you should, cry out to God, what are you doing in my life? Seek to learn those lessons that he has designed for you in your trials and your afflictions. You still pray for deliverance. You have every warrant to do that. Let us seek the Lord, uh, not because we're like Job in the dark tunnel, but because we don't know sometimes and we want him to explain to us. Or we do know, and we want to profit then from that afflictions. I want you to profit from your afflictions, whether they be minor or great, because God has designed them for what? For your profit. So we see the, the continued complaining, 
And we see the persevering prayer, which kind of balances that complaining. Uh, but now we, we come in the third place, and, and we see here what I'm, what I'm going to call the wrong conclusions. At this point, Job's answers are just not satisfactory. And we see that in verses 3 to 7. Is it right for you, indeed, to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Are your years as a man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I'm indeed not guilty, yet there's no deliverance from now, I summarize this by the fact that here's a, here is a believer who can vindicate the justice of God, but has completely lost sight of the goodness of God. And you see that in these two major questions with the conclusion then uh, to which Job comes. So the first question he utters uh, in verse 3, is it right? Now, he's talked about God's justice, but now, according to who God is, is it right for you indeed to oppress to reject the labor of your hands, to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked. Now notice that Job believed in the sovereignty of God. He knew the ultimate source of what was going on in his life. And so he's questioning, you know, what's going on? God, why? Is it really according to your nature? Remember, Job has known the smile of God. He's walked with God. And now God has, in a sense, turned his back on Job. And Job's under this awful oppression, loathing his own life, speaking of the bitterness of his soul. God, is it right for you to oppress? This word oppress takes us back to what Pharaoh did to our brothers and sisters in Egypt, where not only had they make bricks, but now they had to go get their own straw and make bricks. And put this heavy, oppressive burden upon them. He's saying, God, you've put this oppressive burden upon me. Is that, is that really right? Um, is it right to reject the labor of your hands? He'll pick back up on that in the section we'll examine next week. But he says, I'm the product, Lord, not just physically. And not just in my physical prosperity, but as the man that I am in my soul. I am the product, Lord, of your hands. Hands here, you boys and girls know, does God have hands? No. Hands is a figure in the Bible to talk about God's wonderful power. And he says, as all of us are. The product of God's hands. He's will come next week. He's made us in the womb, but he's also remade us and remaking us spiritually. So he says, God, why in the world would you reject the product of your work, both physically and spiritually? And then, is it right to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Now see, he's, he's back now. All right, I've suffered, and God's sovereign. What about the Sabians and Chaldeans? They don't seem to be suffering. Or even more importantly, what about these friends of mine who are slandering me right and left as they sit fat and happy in their prosperity? Is that really consistent with who God is? That's his question. Is what happens consistent with who God is? Now, you know the answer. But Job, at this point, had lost sight of it. The second question has to do, then, uh, with... Uh, the goodness of God, I mean, the severity of God. He's questioning the goodness, the severity of God in verses uh, 4 uh, to 6. Are your days as the days of a mortal? Excuse me. 
Verse 4, have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as a man sees? So first he speaks about God's, the big word, boys and girls, omniscience. He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows our words before we speak to him. He knows the thoughts. On him. He absolutely knows everything about us. So um, have you eyes of flesh? Do you, do you have to examine me like a, a judge would examine me? Um, uh, do you see as a man sees? So he's saying, Lord, I don't need all this testing for you to find out what's in my heart. You, you know full well who I am. Or, or God's eternity. In verse 8, are, are your days as the days of a mortal? Are your years as a man's years? And God's days are eternal. With him, a thousand years are like a day. Um, so God doesn't need some span of time, does he, to really find out what we're like and, and how we're going to uh, respond in any particular situation. So, so why the severity? In, in verse 6, uh, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin. So this is inconsistent again with, with who you are, uh, with your goodness, with your absoluteness of, of omniscience and of, of eternity. Job's thinking, you've got me on the rack. You're, you're torturing me in order to get the, the reality out of me. But Lord, you don't need to do that. You already know everything about me. And you've always known everything about me. You see, he's, he doesn't begin to grasp the fullness of who God is. And so what does he conclude? On the one hand, according to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Remember what he's saying here. He's already confessed sin, and he will again and again. He's not saying he doesn't sin. But he's saying he's not guilty of that which the people are slandering and condemning him. And, and again, this appeal of conscience is so important. God, you know, you know, I'm not guilty. I hope in your conscience you can say, because you've dealt properly with sin, God, you know, I'm not guilty. So if you know I'm not guilty, why then? There's no deliverance from your hand. Why have you left me in this situation? So you see Job's uh, manifestation of his problem. But it comes out of these wrong conclusions about God. He's lost perspective, hasn't he? He's lost sight that God is more than the sovereign, uh, just God. He's, at this point, has completely lost sight of, of the goodness of God. And, th and that's why I state the principle that the believer despairs of God's goodness, who does, must um, continue to seek God in prayer. We must indeed bring our laments and sorrows to God. We must perseveringly pray with him. But we must not have wrong ideas about him. You understand that? And so first, my encouragement to you is you must always be looking to know God. Not some aspect of God that has gripped you, but the totality of his being. This is a mistake that people make. Some get so focused on the sovereignty and justice of God, they have no joy in life whatsoever. Others get unfocused on the love of God and have completely missed out on, on justice, and they'll miss grace then because of that. Now, remember, God is one, which means God is his attributes, and every attribute defines all the other attributes. So God's attributes are like a 
many-faceted diamond, each giving beauty and splendor to the others, all making up the one diamond. And so I just remind you, grow in your knowledge, your comprehensive knowledge of who God is. And the best um, help unto that end, of which I'm aware, is chapter 2 of our Confession of Faith. There he is explained in all the rainbow splendor of his attributes and all of his relationship to the world. And go there, meditate and pray. Teach your children the attributes of God so that we will have this whole picture. And remember that God said that his glory was his goodness. God delights in being good. God delights in pardoning his people. And God only afflicts us out of love. So remember that in the depth of even despair. No, God. But second, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Again, what we see in Job is, is that what he thought was happening to him. He thought God had become his enemy. And publicly, you could say that God was his enemy. That did happen to our Savior, didn't it? God allowed our Savior to be slandered and condemned by men as a filthy, wicked, hypocritical, blasphemous sinner. Worse than God, as God hanged him on the cross, God turned his back on him. God never turned his back on Job. He turned his back on his son on the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he was derelict. But he never complained in the bitterness of soul. He never turned in faith, his faith away from the whole God who was at work in this. He could address him as God even in the depth of agony. But then what I want you to see is that because of what he did is why you and I today can sit here and be absolutely assured of the goodness of God. Christ was made the enemy of God. You and I might be the children of God. And as the children of God, we know that he will never forget, forsake us. For he did not ultimately forsake his son. So yes, he was in the grave, but his body did not see decay. And he was raised again by the triune God. And so now he is seated for us, as we've read in Hebrews chapter 4. And that we then might in him be absolutely assured of the, of the goodness of God in saving sinners. And I hope that every one of you here this morning are well aware of the goodness of God manifested in the saving work of the Son. Because if you're not yet in Christ, there's nothing better fitted to melt your heart than to look there at the one who truly was forsaken and made an enemy. But beloved brothers and sisters, as you look there, then you understand what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. That because of all that he then endured, he is more than able as our high priest to sustain us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we've not, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You think you've been rejected? He was rejected. The one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. That's what happens when you look to Christ. So what is to be your response? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. We're to wait. He will deliver us. He will make clear to some degree as we wait on him what he's doing. Meanwhile, be strong. Be courageous. Face life's difficulties then, not in an unbridled venting of complaint, but in faithful waiting on the Lord. Acting then with courage and steadfastness as we depend upon the grace of the Lord God in the midst of our trials. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.